Hello and welcome. You found the Social Work Podcast. My name is Jonathan Singer, and I'll be your host as we explore all things social work. There's an old saying that goes, what's the fastest way to cure mental illness in an entire group of people? Get rid of the diagnosis. And in 1973, the American Psychiatric Association did just that. Overnight, homosexuality went from being a deviant psychopathology to not being a deviant psychopathology. The full story about how this came to be can be heard in the brilliant This American Life episode, 81 Words. The title is a reference to the number of words that define homosexuality as a mental illness in DSM-2. Today's episode of the Social Work Podcast is about a different but related story. Today's episode is about a story that's going to press at the end of November 2012 and is scheduled to be available to the public in May of 2013. But the ending to this story, we probably won't know how this story ends for years. The story is not about the controversies that have surrounded the development of the DSM-5, although there have been many. And the story is not about the irony of the DSM-5 eliminating the five-axis system in favor of the single-axis system used by the International Classifications of Diseases. No, the story with the unknown ending is the story of how the changes in the DSM-5 will redefine reality for hundreds of millions of people. And I'm not just talking about consumers of mental health services. I'm talking about the providers, parents, insurance companies, book publishers, comedians, and of course, pharmaceutical companies. Okay, so have I piqued your interest yet? Good, because my interest in DSM-5 has been piqued for a couple of years. Mainly because, to be totally honest, I've been totally confused by all the proposed changes to the DSM. It seemed like every couple of months they'd add a diagnosis and then remove another, and then the diagnosis would be back. The criteria for diagnoses kept changing. They proposed changes to the organization and structure of the DSM-5. And on top of all that, the guys who headed up DSM-3 and DSM-4, Robert Spitzer and Alan Francis, kept coming out with editorial after editorial slamming the DSM-5 process and the anticipated product. I didn't know what to think. And I knew I wasn't alone in my confusion, because when I posted the question, what would you like to know about the DSM-5, to the Social Work Podcast Facebook page, 11 people responded in less than an hour, and 20 people responded by the end of the day. So, what did they want to know? Well, Jessica, Shelley, Sandy, Spring, Paul, and Susanna wanted to know about autism, depression, and personality disorders. Shyla and Jen wanted to know about addictions. Lisa wanted to know what was up with ADHD. And Carrie and Lyndon posed some great questions about the merits of DSM diagnosis and social work practice. But where to go for answers? Well, then I read Danielle Parrish's editorial on changes to DSM-5, co-authored with UT Austin's Beth Pomeroy and published in the fall 2012 issue of Social Work. And I thought, I gotta talk to her. So I sent Danielle an email inviting her to talk about DSM-5, and she said yes right away. 
And then she recommended that we include an expert in the proposed changes to DSM-5, Mickey Washburn. Mickey's got an article entitled, What Social Workers Should Know About DSM-5 That's Forthcoming in Social Work. In today's Social Work podcast, Mickey, Danielle, and I cover a lot of ground in 15 minutes. We speak about the cross-cutting dimensional assessment, changes in the organization of the DSM-5, and changes in diagnoses such as ADHD, Asperger's, autism, depression, substance use, and personality disorders. We talked about some of the intended consequences, such as greater accuracy for diagnosis, and some of the possible unintended consequences, such as loss of funding for diagnostic-specific services. And we end with some thoughts about Social Work's role in the new DSM. Now, one note about this interview. The information on DSM-5 discussed in this episode is based on the proposed changes. Social Work students, practitioners, and educators should consult the final version of the DSM for authoritative information about diagnostic criteria, categories, and any other issue discussed in this episode. And now... Without further ado, on to episode 75 of the Social Work Podcast, Proposed Changes in DSM-5, interview with Mickey Washburn and Danielle Parrish. Danielle and Mickey, thank you so much for being here and talking with us about DSM-5. What is the difference here between diagnosis and this cross-cutting dimensional assessment? Well, diagnosis, of course, needs to be done by a trained and licensed clinician. Um, the cross-cutting assessment is a client self-report tool that um, helps us to establish a baseline and evaluate uh, efficacy of treatments in terms of um, increase or decrease in certain symptomology like depressed mood or anger or anxiety levels. So if I've got a client that I've diagnosed with ADHD... I would still use this cross-cutting dimensional assessment? If, if you would like to go ahead and get that information from your client so that you can maybe capture some things from the client's perspective um, that you don't get in your diagnostic interview, it's another piece of information to fill out the puzzle for you. Okay, I can see that because I've had clients who have been diagnosed with ADHD, but they do get angry, right? They've been angry, they've been depressed, they've been suicidal, and that's not captured in the diagnosis. So that's what that's... That's what you understand it's used for? Yes, as I understand that's how it's used, that it's not supposed to be a pre-screening tool or a diagnostic instrument, but rather to give us more sources of data so that we can accurately um, get to the core of what's going on with the client and how to best help them based on these symptoms and the severity. So one of the other things that I've seen is changing is that it's the DSM-5 is going to be organized differently. Like, for example, I work with children and adolescents primarily, and my go-to was that section, which was called Disorders Usually Found in Infancy and Childhood. But I looked on the website, and that is gone. So what's the deal? Yeah, it's all gone. Um, they're actually, they've changed the organization of the manual, and um, they've basically arranged it into categories of, of shared etiology or, or cause, I think, to stimulate research within those areas. They've arranged them by when they're believed to develop or manifest. So things that would happen in childhood typically or show up in childhood would start first and then things in adulthood and so on. Yeah, so like like pica and eating disorders are now in the same category where pica used to be in a disorder of childhood, but eating disorders wasn't. Because pica and 
eating disorders are sort of etiologically the same. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the way that they have things structured now is, um, by the way, you can find most of the things that you used to find in the the uh, disorders of, of childhood and adolescence in your neurodevelopmental disorders. That's kind of the analogous category that has a lot of those diagnoses still in it. And so at the beginning of the manual, you'll find these things. And then throughout the manual, we'll have things grouped based upon kind of a crossover of symptoms. So for example, your mood disorders, what used to be mood disorders is now unipolar disorders and bipolar disorders, and they'll be organized next to each other. Same thing with the anxiety disorders, which is now being broken into three groups. You have your anxiety disorders, you have your trauma-related disorders, and your obsessive-compulsive-related disorders, which within the course of the manual will be close to each other. And then towards the end, disorders that really kind of manifest themselves more frequently in adulthood or late adulthood, for example, your sleep disorders, will be more towards the end of the manual. So it's supposed to have a developmental-type progression and feel. So Mickey, you were just uh, alluding to the fact that there are going to be changes in diagnoses. And one of the big diagnoses that that I worked with was ADHD. And I know that there are going to be some changes to the diagnostic criteria for that. Um, what, what are they? Well, first of all, it's going to be in the category of neurodevelopmental disorders. Um, and the major change, and there's a couple minor ones, but the major change is establishing that the symptom profile has been present prior to age 12 rather than age 7. That's huge, because I know that that's one of the things that was a big complaint of a lot of the parents that I talked with. They're like, well, so my kid was nine. Mm -hmm. Does that mean my kid doesn't have ADHD? What does my kid have? Mm -hmm. Yes, and I, I think that uh, you're correct about that, that this is a, an offshoot of maybe the research evidence showing that 95% of the cases of ADHD can be accurately captured prior to age 12, but as we go younger and younger, that percentage gets lower. All right, so speaking about kids, um, you know, what's the deal with Asperger's disorder and pervasive developmental disorder, NOS? Uh, why have they been subsumed under this autistic spectrum disorder? Um, so I've got a client who's diagnosed with Asperger's disorder. Does this mean that in 2013, my client will no longer have Asperger's disorder? I think that's correct that your client will no longer have Asperger's. However, the diagnosis um, would be consistent with that of being on the autistic spectrum. So that would be the updated diagnosis for your client. So my, my Asperger's client will now be autistic. That's correct. Um, and hopefully as an offshoot of that, maybe the stigma attached to the diagnosis of autism as being this pervasive and a severe illness might be lessened when we see that it's a range or a spectrum of levels of functioning and that there are very high functioning people that could fall into this spectrum as well as people that are not functioning at such a high level. Well, let me jump in here. So I think a lot of the consequences of this change are yet to be seen. We don't know, for instance, for someone who's had an Asperger's diagnosis their entire life, what it's going to mean for them in terms of having all of a sudden being diagnosed autistic, you know, whether or not they're going to perceive a stigma attached to that and if they're going to accept that. You know, the other consequences that we don't know about are, are how that's going to impact services and what's going to be funded. Are certain people going to lose services because they're on the milder end of the spectrum? Are they going to still qualify? And, and you know, and how, so I think a lot of the consequences remain to be seen. And I think that's probably an important thing for social workers to be on the lookout. Mm -hmm. You know, DSM-5 is coming, and what are the uh, anticipated consequences and the unanticipated consequences of 
collapsing a bunch of diagnoses into a spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. So Mickey, you were talking a couple minutes ago about changes to uh, depressive disorders. Can you talk a little bit more about that and some of the other changes that are happening to mood disorders? Sure. The category that used to be mood disorders actually is broken down into depressive disorders and bipolar disorders, um, which clinically is a nice distinction. I think that's going to be helpful uh, the things that I think a lot of people in social work are concerned with is the content of um, some newly added diagnoses in the in the depressive disorders, uh, primarily the diagnosis of premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Um, this is the only diagnosis that has been or currently is gender specific. Okay. So what's going on with the bereavement exclusion? Yeah. So with the bereavement exclusion, it used to be with major depressive disorder that you would consider if somebody's grieving a loss that there would be a longer time frame. There would be three months that you would wait to make a diagnosis. Well, now they've gotten rid of the bereavement exclusion. So so let's say somebody close to me dies and suddenly I meet criteria for two weeks for major depressive disorder. It used to be that I couldn't be diagnosed with major depressive disorder because of bereavement, but now I can be. Right, right. And I think one of the concerns with that from a, a social work perspective is that culturally people grieve in a lot of different ways, and we would consider that to be a normal reaction for some people to have to, to manifest those symptoms after a loss within two weeks or three weeks, maybe even four. And so I think, you know, it's really important not to pathologize grief and loss and you know the implications also for people seeking services you know people may not want to seek services if they're going to be labeled with a a mental disorder because they're grieving a loss Um, and I think it also has implications for helping people go through the grief and loss process what sort of message are we giving if we're saying that people should use medication because they're grieving a loss and not feel the loss and and go through the normal process so i think it has implications for treatment as well all right something else for social workers to look into okay and what's going on with substance use disorders well right now when we're talking about substance we're talking about um abuse and dependence, and I think the the terminology and the way that we're talking about it in DSM-5 is different. Um, there's a return of the, the terminology of addiction and kind of the cognitive, behavioral, and physiological components of that uh, related to substance and uh, the use of substances. So we're talking about substance use disorders now. So the dichotomy between abuse and dependence is gone. That's correct. And it also opens up room for um, other types of addictions, right? That's correct. And actually, um, there was going to be a category that was um, specific to kind of what we would call process addictions. However, um, like, like, for example, uh, like food and sex and money and gambling and things of that nature. And actually, um, pathological gambling is characterized underneath the the substance category now. And then something like we would call Internet addiction is in the appendix for uh, one of the disorders for further study. So maybe DSM-6. Maybe. Something to look forward to. All right, so personality disorders. These are getting a huge makeover. Reducing the number of disorders and putting in a dimensional assessment. Can you talk about these? 
Yes, and this is something that's kind of been uh, kicked around in the personality realm for a number of years. And um, basically, we are eliminating disorders that do not have a strong empirical research support base to have them be diagnostically specific on their own with the exception of narcissistic personality disorder, which we are retaining due to the clinical utility of that particular diagnosis. But of the other five personality disorders that are being retained, they map onto different, what we call dimensions of personality um, that are characteristic of particular disorder. Um, one of the diagnoses that is being eliminated is histrionic personality disorder. <gasps> no way, oh my God, I can't believe it. Yes, that's, that's very troubling for, for some people, I'm sure. Uh, one of the ones that we're retaining is borderline personality disorder. And if we're looking at dimensional assessment, we would say that this particular diagnosis or, or group of symptoms, um, something they have in common is this negative affectivity, that they are very emotionally labile, which is true of a number of different disorders, but especially characteristic of this one. Um, and so we're looking at dimensions of personality that may have before been so overlapping that a client would end up with one or two or three personality disorder diagnoses or our favorite NOS diagnosis. And we're trying to go ahead and cut down um, on the number of diagnoses and really get more specific of, okay, what are the traits associated with these things? What is the impairment of functioning um, in relation to the self and to others? And how do we best treat these? So when I was interviewing Jennifer Mellencamp about non-suicidal self-injury, she talked about that becoming a disorder uh, in the DSM-5. But uh, self-injury and cutting has always been associated with borderline personality disorder, which you were just talking about. So how does that change things? Well, hopefully that is going to lead to a reduction in um, an overdiagnosis of a, of borderline personality disorder. I think some clinicians wrongly assign that diagnosis with the presence of any type of self-injury behavior, but not necessarily looking at the full criteria of these other aspects um, of things associated with what we would call a diagnosis of borderline. And so this hopefully will try to tease that out that just because um, somebody is engaging in kind of a maladaptive coping mechanism doesn't mean that they have this pervasive way of interacting with their world, which is um, more consistent with a, a real borderline diagnosis. So I'm hoping that this change is really going to kind of tease those two things apart. So a lot of the things you guys have been talking about, um, it sounds like it's really trying to specify diagnoses, like really clarify what is problematic and what's not problematic. Mm -hmm. Do you see this as being a step forward or a step back, especially when you think about it for social workers? Well, I, th I think that that has yet to be seen as well. I think it's important that we have specificity in our diagnoses and that we are very clear about what it is that we're trying to treat and how to best go about that. But on the other hand, I think one of the concerns in general with um, some of the changes is that we're lowering the threshold for diagnosis. Um, we also have a lot of new disorders. So I think we don't know yet what the implications are going to be, but I think as social workers, we need to consider some of the changes, what they mean for our clients, you know, get familiar and prepare for that. 
I think Danielle is absolutely right about that, that the jury's still out on a lot of the implications of these changes, and we'll have to wait and see. And hopefully, it's going to lead to better client outcomes with this increased, um, hopefully, increased validity of diagnosis and also um, trying to base things on the research evidence that has accumulated over the last 20 years. Certainly hoping that's the direction it's going in, but we really can't tell right now. Well, Danielle and Mickey, thank you so much for being here today on the Social Work Podcast talking about DSM-5. Thanks for having us. I think it's really important for social work to be talking about this right now. A pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you so much. I'm Jonathan Singer, and thanks for being with me today for another episode of the Social Work Podcast. If you missed an episode or have suggestions for future episodes, please visit socialworkpodcast.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit our online store at cafepress.com slash swpodcast. To all the social workers out there, keep up the good work. We'll see you next time at the Social Work Podcast.